0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome,
2: welcome, welcome, welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I spoke with Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and if polling is correct, he's destined to be the next prime minister of this country. A lot of questions for Mr. Scheer, including about Normandy and about something the prime minister said, which got everybody's attention in Canada this week. Also, school dress codes changing in Toronto. Is it a good idea? We asked our callers and I spoke as well with the president of the Long Beach, California Unified School Board where they have school uniforms and have had them for 25 years and it's been great success. The Raptors, are they Canada's team or Toronto's team? What about basketball? Is it catching up in popularity to hockey? Angus Reid did a poll on that. We found out the information, as you will as well. And ISIS, a Canadian member, says that ISIS demanded he attack U.S. targets. Said he wouldn't do it. I spoke to an assessor, an expert, on the issue of terrorism. And $196 billion in business development stalled by the federal liberals over five years. $196 billion. You'll get that story. Joining us on the program is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer, who, according to national polling, if an election were held today, would be the prime minister of this country, or prime minister-elect by the end of the day. Mr. Scheer, good to have you back. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing well. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show again. And sorry it took a little bit longer to confirm uh, this (laughs) appearance.
0: Well, you're a busy guy, and uh, and I'm persistent, so we usually work things
3: out. Well, credit to you for doing that. Thanks for uh, reminding us. Yeah, Um, well, very happy to be on the show.
0: You can count on that. Uh, Your 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 antagonist there, Mr. Trudeau, has been invited for the last four years, but other than a sort of a marginal moment of interest from the PMO, he's managed to avoid this program studiously.
3: And anyway. well, I can commit to coming back on as prime minister in
0: the future. <laughs> well, good. I'll hold you to that. Why did you remove Michael Cooper from the Parliamentary Justice Committee when he apologized for personally insulting Mr. Faisal Khan Suri? And, and are you considering expelling Mr. Cooper from the Conservative Party Caucus?
3: Uh, no, we're not, uh, and and no, I'm not. Uh, I believe that uh, Michael is an honorable uh, person who uh, took a responsibility for for what he did at committee. And uh, if, as far as I'm concerned, the matter is closed. Uh, we did, you know, in terms of uh, removing him from the committee, we did. I did make the the decision that based on the context of, of uh, the appearance and the sensitivities around the uh, the tragedy that happened in Christchurch that. Quoting from the, uh, the perpetrator of that tragedy was was inappropriate, especially given the the, 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 the the dynamic at the committee. But as far as any further steps, I think that Michael has done the right thing, and he's apologized and he's taken responsibility for what he's done. And uh, and I think it's uh, the, the, the matter is closed in that respect.
0: Based on the follow up on the question on Michael Cooper, is I know I'm a conservative commentator. There are some of us in this country, not as many as there should be, but we are. You know, we we look at the world. Through, a, through the conservative prism, and more and more Canadians appear to be doing that if you look at what's happening with provincial elections and you look at the national polling. So what support do you think I deserve and those of us who are conservative supporters deserve? Because we're constantly under some level of attack.
3: Well, you deserve a, a tremendous amount of support, and I gave a, a speech the other day where I was talking about the, the danger in painting an entire uh, mainstream political movement with the, with the same brush and tarring uh, people like you and me and others who stand up for conservative uh, principles with uh, with the actions of, of a very small number. Uh, it's something that certainly doesn't happen on the other side of the equation. There are people who uh, subscribe to very left-wing, big government socialist views that, that do hateful and evil things. And uh, I would certainly never hold uh, Justin Trudeau or uh, Jagmeet Singh responsible for, for the state or actions of a small number of, of, of individuals who do uh, unacceptable things on, on that side of the spectrum. So I think it's very important that we don't allow people to demonize. Those who are critical of Justin Trudeau on a number of different policies, whether it's uh, maintaining control over our borders, uh, whether it's, uh, it's the way he's been dividing Canadians, uh, there's 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 space for legitimate debate, and, and the types of critiques and analysis that you do, that I do in the House of Commons, uh, is very vital to democracy, and we happen to be on the on the right side of these issues. Well, I think so, and, and if
0: if if Mr. Trudeau has an issue, or if people on the left have an issue, they're always welcome to come on the program, and they're welcome to make their point. And they're welcome to get into a QA. It's just that, you know, I am not going to back off just because they're because they 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 want to throw accusations around. Let me ask you about this. That, uh, Justin Trudeau accepted that Canada committed genocide following the release of the report by the Commission on Murdered Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. He didn't at first. But then in Vancouver he said, and I quote, we accept their findings, including that what happened amounts to genocide. What's your response, what's your reaction to Mr. Trudeau's statement?
3: Well, first, let me start off by saying that uh, my, uh, my our, our hearts and our and, and our sentiments go out to the victims of uh, in the, that and the victims and their families who came forward in this uh, inquiry. Uh, it was uh, very moving to to hear the testimony of people who lost uh, daughters, mothers, wives, sisters. Um, I believe that the, the the tragedy that has happened to this vulnerable section of our uh, society is its own thing. I, I don't believe it falls in uh, to the category, uh, to the definition of uh, of, of genocide, it, it is its own tragedy that that uh, this report has put forward very some very specific. Recommendations that I think we can make progress on to uh, to protect people who are uh, you know at risk of, 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 of either being murdered or being abducted or being trafficked, and uh, and so I think that we need to be very careful with which terms we we use. Uh, these words have meanings, and the term genocide brings up a whole host of considerations and ramifications. That, uh, that That are very, very specific in its application, and i don 't think that we need to, uh, to, to 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 use that label for this particular incident uh, that is its own thing it is its own tragedy, it stands on its own as something that politicians need to take seriously
0: of course and and there 's no question. That there's tremendous empathy and concern, and uh, and the need to know what's going on and what happened, and the, the people take responsibility. But the word genocide is one that brings with it a great deal of responsibility, particularly when you point the word at successive governments of your own country. Mr. Um,
3: Scheer, well, exactly. And and I point if I could, I would point you know, and you're you're exactly right. And uh, when when I think of the uh, former liberal. Senator and former General uh, Romeo Dallaire, who who witnessed the Rwandan genocide firsthand, and, and he has come out and stated uh, that he does not believe that uh, the term applies in this situation. Uh, I would certainly uh, defer to his expertise and his judgment on this.
0: And we know that Mr. Trudeau, in 2016, in Parliament, refused to vote. Uh an emotion that that would have defined ISIS and their horrific actions as genocidal, and uh, it, it, without the dictionary definition, what ISIS did certainly would have appeared to have been genocidal, and uh, and 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 many times over.
3: Well, I certainly can't understand why he is uh, why he was uh, so reluctant, to why he refused to use uh, that term uh, when we're looking at. Uh, you know, Yazidis being wiped out. When we're looking at Jews being wiped out, Christians, uh, moderate Muslims. Uh, when we're looking at gays being pushed off of buildings, uh, all uh, because of, uh, uh, of, of, of the actions of, of, of ISIS. Uh, I don't know why he wouldn't refuse to use it in that term, uh, but yet uh, in this situation, he seems quite willing to to uh, accept that. Use of the word. So again, if he if he agrees to come on the show, maybe you can ask him. But uh, again, shows that this prime minister's judgment just doesn't seem to uh, just doesn't seem to be consistency on it.
0: Why did you not attend the seventy fifth anniversary commemoration on Juneau Beach in France? You were invited by the PMO.
3: Yeah, so I, I was very honored to attend a D-Day ceremony in Regina in my riding. I was with the Royal Regina Rifles, and they held a, a very uh, a very simple but a very moving ceremony at the Cenotaph in Victoria Park in Regina, and I was uh, uh, very pleased to be able to be there with them. Um, my, uh, my, my wife doesn't ask a lot of me, Roy, and a, a few months ago she asked if I would be at home for uh, a very mo- uh, important Event in, in in our family, both her mother and her brother were being recognized by the University of Regina for their philanthropic work, and uh, they received honorary doctorates. The first time in the university's history that a mother and son were being recognized uh, like that. And a few months ago, she asked me if I would block some time off on the calendar. And as I said, she doesn't ask a whole lot of me, and I, I said I would. And uh, when I got the invitation from the Prime Minister's Office just uh, a few a few about ten days or so before. The, uh, the the commemoration of D-Day. Uh, we did offer to send our deputy leader, Lisa Waite, the, um, the, the Prime Minister's Office turned that down. So I was, uh, I was very honored to be able to rec- recognize the day at home in Regina with, uh, with the Royal Regina Regiment. Okay, that doesn't require a follow-up
0: question. I, I, clearly, the 75th anniversary of D-Day is of massive significance to this to this country and to our very existence, and the fact that you can run this for prime minister in a democratic nation, I don't know how much time you have left, but everything got kind of thrown upside down by what happened on the phone. Do you have a couple
3: of minutes? Yeah, okay, I have, I have two or three more. Yeah, okay.
0: Well, let's have you hear your thoughts on Bill C69 and C48. They've gotten their way through the Senate. And now it's going back to Parliament. What are your thoughts about what happened in the Senate to each of them, and what are you expecting parliamentarians to do? Because ultimately, it's going to be in the hands of Mr. Trudeau and his caucus.
3: Yeah. Well, I wasn't surprised that the Senate uh, voted to reinstate Bill C48, the shipping ban, and uh, and to send uh, C69 ultimately prove it and send it back to the House. Uh, the Senate is controlled by Liberals. Uh, As much as Justin Trudeau likes to pretend they're not, he has a majority A majority of uh, Senators in the Senate are either appointed by him or appointed by previous Liberal Prime Ministers. And and they have shown time and time again that at the end of the day they are Liberals. They they may not sit in the Liberal caucus, but they certainly uh, either take their marching orders or think alike and uh, move in lockstep. So they're back in the House of Commons. Justin Trudeau has shown a complete um, lack of sensitivity to the the, the damage that his policies ha, have been ha, have been uh, having the effect in Alberta and Saskatchewan. The fact that uh, Bill C-69 is universally opposed by the energy sector and by uh, premiers who have been fighting it, uh, this, if Bill C-69 passes in the form uh, that it left the House in, uh, it, it'll, it'll be the end of pipelines in this, in this country. It, it, there's no certainty. It provides no guarantees for approvals. The, way too much political interference can be uh, imposed upon uh, an approvals process So we're going to do everything we can to to defeat it in the House. At the end of the day, the Liberals have a majority. I suspect it will pass, uh, but we we are committed to repealing it uh, should the Canadian people put their faith in us this October.
0: I'm going to be speaking with uh, Colin Craig in a couple of minutes, the president of Second Street... Dot .org the think tank and they found that in the just over the last 5 years 196 billion dollars in natural resource projects have been stalled or canceled because of actions in Ottawa 196 billion add that to 107 billion that Frank McKenna told us the deputy chair of the of uh, TD that uh, and a study they undertook just to, just just because of the discount at which we sell our oil to the United States, our only customer. That's a third of our national debt, right there. It's huge. It's huge.
3: And, and it's not just an Alberta and Saskatchewan thing. Uh, there are so many jobs in ontario uh, and eastern canada where uh, whether it's manufacturing into the supply chain whether it's uh, people who work at in head offices or in the financial sector uh, this is a huge loss to our economy and we have to remember these big pipeline proponents who have canceled projects in canada or have had them vetoed by the government they're not getting out of the energy sector they're not getting out of the oil and gas business they're just getting out of it in canada and they're making those investments in the U.S. and in South America and other countries around the world. And so that opportunity is, is, is leaving this country for other places. And I think it's a lot of this is being promoted. Uh, the, the opposition to these pro- projects are being stirred up by foreign-funded groups that get money from uh, big institutions from around the world. And I've made one of the key planks in my energy policies that – Advocacy groups who receive foreign funding will not be uh, given standing in approvals processes, so they can't use foreign funds to gum up our approvals process and delay these important jobs for our – these projects for our economy.
0: Good. I have one more question for you. I know you'll want to answer it. Interprovincial trade and your National Energy Corridor. Address those, please.
3: Yeah, so on the uh, the National Energy Corridor – in order to be able to get to a yes again in this country, in order to be able to be the country of of yes and not always of no and blocks and and cancellations, my idea is to have uh, a corridor going west and a corridor going east where different levels of government can work together to clear the way from a regulatory point of view to do the Indigenous consultations, to do the environmental review on a specific corridor that would run through various territories so that uh, we can take care of that on the front end and then project proponents would just have to meet the environmental standards and the safety specifications and that that could bring certainty and it would uh, allow for natural resources it would also allow for hydro from quebec and manitoba so there's big big potential there and i recognize it's gonna be uh, a lot of hard work to do all that but we've done this in the past in our country from the railways to the original pipelines to the saint Lawrence seaway so And i think it's time that we have something similar for the next Three or four generations, and when it comes to interprovincial free trade, you know this is one of those one, things that really drives me crazy. To think that we live in a country where it's easier to sell a product to the United States than it is in between provinces—it uh, makes no sense to me. If uh, if I'm eating a steak in Saskatchewan from a from a processing plant that doesn't have federal uh, credentials, right. that state can't be sold in Manitoba. That doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. So my idea is to have a truly interprovincial free trade deal that would uh, unleash a whole lot of economic potential in this country.
0: Mr. Sheer, thank you for the time. I appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much.
3: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ray.
0: Bye-bye. Andrew Sheer, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, according to polling next prime minister of this country.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: Toronto District School Board has changed its dress code, and uh, here's a little bit of a story that was carried in global news. I'll read a few lines. The Toronto District School Board, TDSB, is modernizing its student dress code, relaxing rules around wearing spaghetti straps, tube tops, crop tops, hats, and more. The list of changes includes being able to wear tops that may expose shoulders, backs, stomachs, midriffs, necklines, and cleavage. Bottoms may expose legs, thighs, and hips. The report acknowledges that the school board's student dress policy has been written and enforced in ways that disproportionately and negatively impacts female-identified students, racialized students, gender-diverse, transgender, and non-binary students, students with disabilities, socioeconomically marginalized students, and indigenous First Nation, Métis, and Inuit students. Focused, explicit, persistent, and determined action is required to challenge and overcome this history, quote-unquote. However, students are not allowed to wear anything that pro- promotes drugs, violence, hate, or prejudice, or clothing that threatens health and safety, or puts schools at risk. So in a little bit, we're going to be speaking with the president of the Long Beach Unified School Board in uh, in California. Because there they've had a school uniform policy for the last 25 or 26 years, and it has served them extremely well. But joining us from the Toronto District School Board is Ryan Bird. He's the manager of corporate and social media relations. Ryan, thank you so much for the time. good to be with you. So, so why now? Why the change now?
4: i think for it's part of our usual policy review there's a a process now where all of our policies are reviewed on a regular basis so the student dress code was up for review Uh, we had a 90-day review process for this one students staff parents um, i think out of the 428 responses we received online 19 percent were from students which to be honest Uh, for a school board policy we're we're not getting a lot of student input on something like that but we really did get a lot of students come out and offer their input on this so as part of our usual review process we kind of looked at it up until now our 582 schools have had varying dress codes of their own. We've had this kind of the basics that you rhymed off off the top about no hate, nothing promoting hate, violence, that kind of thing. That was in our original policy, but then the rest basically said, but it's up to individual schools to work out their own dress code. So then when this review came up, we decided, okay, we can't have each and every school doing their own dress code, because quite frankly, it's not there's no consistency. You know, you could walk into one school wearing one thing and walk into another school wearing the same thing, and it would be treated differently. So that's why they did a, a, a review and then a consistent board-wide approach this time around.
0: Okay, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, if you had done this kind of study um, or, or asked the question when I was in high school where we had to wear shirt, tie, jacket, dress pants, dress shoes every day of the school year, Except for maybe the last few, you would have gotten a lot more than 19%. And I think it would have been definitely, let's relax things. But um, the question is, is it relaxed? Has it been relaxed too far? And did students have a disproportionate say in this? So that's what people are asking. What response are you getting from parents? Now, I I read a story where at least one parent has said, I'm not going to accept this. My child is moving to the Catholic school board and is going to be wearing a uniform. Are you hearing much of that?
4: Well, I I think we're hearing all different views, to be honest. Uh, We're hearing people that aren't too big a fan. Uh, We're hearing others that say it's the right approach. What we're saying overall, though, is that the school board is not policing kids' clothing. We're getting out of that business. uh, Other than, you know, the basics, you have to cover up certain areas, obviously. Um, But in general, we're no longer policing uh, students' clothing. That's a decision. Uh, For parents and students to make we're not going to when you walk into the school. We're not looking at the length of a dress We're not looking at you know, are you showing off too much skin are we're not looking at? um, Anything like that anymore. We're just getting out of the policing of it constantly. Okay. I understand Um, that but you know
0: in the United States uh, there are more and more school boards going to uniforms And they find that it's necessary to do that. And the ones that are doing it are finding, and President Obama, by the way, was one person who was very much in favor of that. It goes all the way back to Bill Clinton who supported the idea. Uh, And they're finding that it's helping with the learning environment. There's less violence. There's better marks. There's less absenteeism. Everyone is basically appearing in the same consistent attire and it's causing fewer problems and the learning experience improves. So if there is a, is, is there anything being looked at here if, if this policy uh, if there's a, a resultant I don't want to use the word drop, if there's a change significant change in the achievement level of students is the policy revisited?
4: Uh, you know, obviously, well, the policy would be revisited as just part of our, our review. So I think it's every four years that we take a look at the policy. And if there's fine tuning that needs to be made, obviously, we'd look at that. Mm-hmm. We do have some schools that already have uniforms. It's not a board wide, but we do have some schools that have uniforms. With, in the, within yes, your
0: we, within your board?
4: Yes, we do. Uh, the, now, there's not a lot of them, but that we do have some schools that the decision in their own school communities, parents, students and staff decided that uh, uniforms would be used. But, but does that now not, does
0: that now change for them?
4: Uh, no, they'll still be able to continue, but obviously they'll want to look at their own dress codes and, and take a look at it again. Do we want to mm-hmm. continue with uniforms? Do we want to uh, go to whatever you'd like, essentially? Okay. So they'll have to look at that.
0: So the, what,
4: the other I'm, – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, what I was going to say, I think at its base, it really is – it's parents and students get to decide what they want to wear. Um, and I think that when it gets into – one teacher in one class says you know roy that's inappropriate and then you go into another class and the teacher doesn't think anything's inappropriate and so there's a there was a complete lack of consistency and what we're trying to say is that you do you. You you wear what you want to wear. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting out of the policing business of
0: it. Okay, well, there, there's, again, there's always the question does it help the learning experience? Because that's why students are going to school. Let me ask you this other question yeah. that's been floating around, and, and I need to get clarification on this. Is it now no longer mandatory uh, to remove a cap, a headgear, you know, like your baseball cap when the national anthem is played?
4: Yeah. It is not forced upon students anymore. Now, some students, some schools, may have had that rule in place, and some schools may not have. Uh, That's the thing with our dress codes, is that each school could have done their own thing. We were running into issues where you could go into one class, you wouldn't have to take it off. You go into another class, you would have to take it off. What we're saying is, and I personally, I, I take off my hat. I would encourage my kids to take their hat off during the National Anthem. And teachers can still encourage students to take off their hats during the anthem.
0: But it's not mandatory. What we're
4: not going to do anymore is... Get into that you know an argument every morning, send them down to the office, take away class time, and do that because someone is insistent on not wearing their hat. That's what we're not doing anymore. Okay. I think that a majority of students will still continue to take their hats off. We're just not getting into any formal discipline yeah reaction i think
0: you're I think you're passing the buck on that one. I think it's I think just fundamental respect. And, and just look look back to last Thursday. That's all you mm-hmm. have to do. But anyway, Ryan, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. No problem. Have a great yeah, weekend. You, Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Ryan Bird is uh, with the Toronto District School Board. He's the manager of corporate and social media. So Toronto school students uh, will be able to wear tops that may expose shoulders, backs, Stomachs, midriffs, necklines, and cleavage. Bottoms may expose legs, thighs, and hips. Um, Relaxed rules around wearing spaghetti straps, tube tops, crop tops, hats, and more. And it's no longer mandatory to take off your cap when O Canada is being played. Or Does anybody sing it in school? We used to. Um, But taking off your cap to respect O Canada is no longer required. What's your reaction to the Toronto District School Board and the decision they've made as far as the dress code is concerned? Here's Elaine in London. How are you, Elaine?
5: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm well. What do you think of it?
5: I don't like it at all. I uh, went to Toronto schools and when, well, mind you, I'm <laughs> dating myself, we had to wear dresses and it wasn't until i left high school that they were finally able to wear pants
0: so let me ask you when you know like is this nostalgia is this nostalgia or is it just common sense where you're saying if you're allowed to wear what you want to wear then you're going to be distracting from the school day i mean are we caught between nostalgia and reality that's the question
5: I don't know, because I've got a, a son. I was a single parent, and right. I used to have to spend $250 on pairs of jeans. Yeah. Yeah. he decided
6: to go to a Catholic school so he could wear a uniform.
0: Okay. Thank you for the call. From Burlington, Ontario, Diana. Hi, Diana.
6: Hello. How are you? I'm,
0: I'm well. How are you doing?
6: Very good, thank you. I love you so. Thank you. Uh, I've had it all the way around. So um, in Canada, I went to a private school. That was um, obviously, had yeah, to wear their attire. Um, and my parents could afford it. So that was one thing. But what the kids would do was they'd compete on trying to get the shortest. So we I think we had three inches above the knee when we prayed. Anyway, so then my children, I have four children. Some went to the Catholic school, and they had uniforms. And then someone... And the they Catholic. still do. Yeah exactly so um and my granddaughter who's five was in the public school and they moved and they decided to put her into the catholic school board what a change in her attitude getting ready in the morning there's no more uh, she doesn't know what to wear she doesn't know if this goes with this it's mm-hmm. taking all the pressure off of mom and dad and what i like about it is in, she's in the niagara region is that as long as it's a blue tunic and a white shirt a blue pants and a white shirt it's fine. It, it's not a school-issued uniform. Yeah. Uniform
0: look, per se. Look, look. Look. Dana. The, the 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 idea here is, I think, for 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 many people, is you're going to school, you're going to a learning environment, that, which is going to set you up, hopefully, for the for the rest of your, or at least for part of your professional life. You may go on to post-secondary education. You may not. You may take a trade. In any event, it's not a party. You're not going to a party. You're going to school. No. Exactly. And so and so to dress accordingly makes absolute sense to me. What I really don't like, what I really object to, is that it's not mandatory to remove headgear when yeah. O Canada's played.
6: I object hundred percent to that.
0: And to say, and for the board to say, and I don't have any problem with Ryan, he's he's the he's the messenger. We don't shoot the messenger here. No. But the, for the board to say we don't police clothing and we don't police wearing a wearing a cap, that is just uh, a, a shirking responsibility it's being disrespectful and Definitely. and and the, and the cap things everybody everybody should object to that
6: yes and even without being said i believe while you're eating you know you take your hat off while you're eating so
0: yeah well i mean we're, we're talking about the, we're, we're talking about we're talking about school and kids i don't think that they're going to do that dana thank you for the call in burlington ontario talking about school uniforms And the Toronto District School Board making its changes, which you heard described. Now, in uh, California, at the Long Beach, California Unified School Board, they made some significant changes to their dress code, huge changes to their dress code in the mid-90s. And I remember I just started doing this, well, my then Monday to Friday show. And uh, I heard about this, and I called the, uh, the school board, and I spoke with the representative there, and it seemed like it made sense to me what they were doing. And here we are, some 25 years later, and the school board is still doing it. They still have a uniform policy, and I understand more and more school boards in the United States are following suit. Diana Craighead is the president, and she's a board member of the Long Beach, California Unified School Board. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Craighead, thank you very much for the time.
7: Oh, thank you. My pleasure.
0: So you have three children who all went through this experience with the school uniforms at, at, at Long Beach, and how did that work out?
7: Well, I thought it worked out great. As a mom, it was very easy um, to get the kids ready for school in the morning. You know, sometimes kids don't always want to comply, but having those uniforms made it very easy.
0: Now, remind us again, please, why the uniforms were introduced in the mid-90s.
7: Well, uniforms were first introduced here as a part of a larger effort um, to raise standards of dress, behavior, and achievement. Appropriate attire helps students to achieve um, based on their character and not their clothing. And for us in Long Beach and some of our neighborhoods, uniforms can also help prevent students from wearing gang attire. And schools nationwide have replicated this policy, and that's because uniforms and dress codes help students. And staff remain focused on teaching and learning.
0: You know, I like what you're doing. I like the way you're approaching it. I, I, I'm not going to ask you to comment on the Toronto situation, but when I hear we're not in the business of policing clothing, I, <laughs> I would beg to differ. I would think that that's all part of the component picture now, or a component part of the big picture. But you, you found very quickly, did you not, in Long Beach, that the wearing of the uniforms created a, not only a better school environment, but it also created better marks, less absenteeism, and, and far. Less violence.
7: Um, yes, absolutely.
0: And what does the uh, and, and that's still the case today? I take it. Yes. Now, are the uh, do the students buy in? The students who are in your uh, in in your you know going to school in your board? Do they are they comfortable with the idea of the uniforms or is there <laughs> at least the occasional rebellion?
7: <laughs> well, um, I think you have it correct for the most parts or for the most part, the students, you know, buy into the uniform. And I think um, what uh, makes that easy is that we require uniforms from, you know, preschool on up. And out of our six comprehensive high schools, two of them require uniforms. The other four comprehensive high schools um, don't require uniforms. So occasionally at those high schools that require uniforms, we we do hear about kids that are not happy with that, but for the most part, um, everybody's you know pretty happy with it.
0: And the uniform consists of what?
7: Well, it's uh, very easy to comply with our uniforms because it consists of um, a collared shirt, mostly white, blue, or red, depending on the school, and navy blue bottoms. And then students are able to wear sweatshirts or T-shirts with school logos, so it's it's very easy to comply with the uniform. Okay,
0: and and it is true, is it not, that more school boards across the United States are involving themselves with the uniform policies?
7: Yes, I believe our uniform policy is being replicated across our country.
0: Can you uh, speak a little more to the issue of improving scholastic? Achievements since the uniforms have been in place?
7: Well, I don't have those numbers in front of me. I don't have actual data, so I'd have to follow up with you on that. But our research does show that, um, you know, we've had significant gains in student achievement and we. You know our successes cannot be entirely attributed to school uniforms because we've also implemented a number of other reforms at the same time so you know you can't really separate that out with the research um But um, our uniforms have been an important part of the success over the past two decades.
0: I remember when I had my first conversation with uh, someone from your board. Again, this goes back to the Mm mid-90s. And uh, I was asking, what about the families that find themselves perhaps socioeconomically a little challenged as far as purchasing uh, specific -specific school-specific clothing is concerned when they have problems just buying clothes for their kids? Period, and I was I was told at the time there was a program in place, which in fact recycles uh, uniforms, which parents who may have difficulty financially can access.
7: Yes, we have recycling programs at our schools, and we also have strong support from philanthropic. Uh, fil- organizations in our community, most notably the Assistance League of Long Beach, which now helps to provide uniforms for as many as 10,000 of our students each year. And locally, we have stores like Target and Walmart that carry school uniforms at very affordable prices.
0: (laughs) Uh, I think this is really very, very interesting. I, it, to me, it makes absolute sense because when you're going to school, it's, a, it's, a, it's really an experience that, that precedes your professional life. And uh, you should be learning. Uh, you're there for information that will help you for the rest of your life. Right. And to then be part of an environment that will at least somewhat and uh, maybe not mirror but be similar to what you may be facing in your professional life makes just so much sense and and when you're looking when you when you can demonstrably prove that your absenteeism your violence your gang related activities are all down and scholastic achievements are up it speaks volumes
7: yes Yes, I believe so.
0: If I were going back to school, I'd be coming to your school, but it's been too long.
7: <laughs> and I bet you'd be a high achiever, too. <laughs> I don't know about that.
0: I don't know about that. You know, I spent the best four years of my life in grade 10. <laughs> 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 thank you, Ms. Craighead. Good talking to you. Oh, thank you. All the best. Diana Craighead is the president. And a board member of the Long Beach Unified School Board in California. I really hope Kawhi Leonard stays. Every reason to stay. This is a strong Raptors team. They have the future, really the next two, three, four years. They're going to be at least one of the powerhouses in the Eastern Conference, and they could go on a series of NBA championship runs. So why would Kawhi Leonard want to leave? And there's no question in my mind, this Raptors team is going to wrap it up in the next game. It'll be five games, and the Warriors will be gone. So I was listening to some American sports radio this morning. I was curious. I got up, turned on the radio. Flipped around until I found an American sports show, and really, what they were saying, uh, I can spell it out for you: W A A H, W A A H. It was all wow, 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 and oh, the Warriors are going to come back, and they're going to beat the Raptors in Game Five, and then they'll repeat what the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron did a couple of years ago. Only it was the other way around, with LeBron and the Cavaliers beating the Warriors. Not going to happen, folks. The Raptors are going to win this thing in five games. By the way, and I don't have proof, but a proof is a proof, Uh, I I predicted it. I predicted five games. Yeah, I did. I did. Five games. I did. Raptors in five. I may have a witness somewhere. (laughs) I think I do, actually. Anyhow, it's um, it's very exciting, and uh, the question is just how much staying power does this have? Is it a one-year phenomenon? Uh, is basketball the game of the future in this country? Don't get mad at me. Don't 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 get mad at me. If you look at the uh, uh, the crowd at Jurassic Park in Toronto and some of the other Jurassic parks that are formed around the country, take a look at the demographic there. A lot of them, most of them, are I'd say under thirty years of age. Now, sure, there'd be excitement if a Canadian-based NHL team were in the finals, the Stanley Cup finals. We'd have something similar, more than likely. But is basketball gaining on hockey in this country? Uh, Dave Korzynski is a research associate at the Angus Reid Institute, and it was Dave's idea to do a national poll on the popularity of basketball and the popularity of the Raptors. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How are you, Dave.
2: I'm doing well. Good afternoon, Roy. How are you?
0: I'm good. Now, I, 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 I was reminded um, a couple of hours ago that uh, 26 and 27 years ago, at this time, the country was getting very excited again because it looked like another team was headed to World to World Championship, and that team was the Blue Jays. And, of course, they won in 92 and 93. And there was this whole argument of, well, are they Toronto's team or are they Canada's team? Well, the fact that the whole country was cheering for them when they got into the playoffs, I think, kind of answered that question. But um, let's start with this. What's the first question you put out there to, 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 to Canadians on, on your poll?
2: Yeah, I know I'd love to chat about who, whose team it is, because Canadians certainly have uh, have their opinions. But the the driving force behind this was really, we asked this question uh, periodically and over the course of the last five years uh, almost all of which I've been here with the Angus Reid Institute um, we ask Canadians which sports leagues they follow it's usually connected to a, an ongoing story and what we found is that uh, over the course of the five years there's a very consistent response rate in terms of about four in ten Canadians say they follow the NHL regularly so this is a typical viewership this is not not taking into account the playoffs when viewership rises And the NBA uh, always hovers around 1 in 10, so we got uh, 13% this year when we asked it. And the the idea was, let's compare that to and see what those populations do over the course of the playoffs and then with the finals now. And really what you see is that that 13% turned into 27% for the amount of uh, Canadians who said they were following the playoffs. And it's now jumped to 40% for those who say that they're following the NBA finals. So you've seen a tripling of of, uh, engagement of those people that are really tuned into this. And I think that helps to explain why... You know, the, the TV ratings have been so good, and the country's been so excited about this over the last few weeks. So so is
0: this just a blip because the Raptors are in the NBA Finals, because they've got Kawhi Leonard, because it looks as though they're going to win the championship? Is is this a blip? Is it going to disappear, and, and or at least is it going to recede back to those 1-in-10 numbers?
2: Yeah, that is a great question, um, and, you know, so much of it relies on Kawhi right now, who I really got to say it feels like he could be a great honorary canadian you know he's quiet he gives a very hockey player type responses to questions he's uh he, you know people accuse him of being a robot but you know i think he would fit right in in terms of the canadian culture and the way that we're, we're used to our athletes uh, in uh dave he's one of us eh yeah i eh? think so <laughs> you know there's, there's rumors that he's considering a, an extension and i think that That would really help to solidify this because you've got all this attention and then say say the Raptors do win the title, they go into next year. Next year is a celebration year. You've got everybody coming to the arena. You're hanging banners. There's a parade. And you get to carry over that attention. The team is in a a bit of a precarious situation if he leaves because, you know, Kyle Lowry is also on a pretty big contract and they, they might think about moving him and now your top two players are gone and you're rebuilding. So how do you how do you maintain that? Well, if
0: you want to if audience. you want to, if you want to destroy your national momentum, let uh, don't do everything you possibly can to keep Kawhi and then let uh, Kyle Lowry go. If you really want to destroy your national momentum, there you go.
2: Yeah, and you, you know it, it, there's I was looking at the the groups of uh, the age and gender dynamics on this and you know you've got men are really really keyed into this about 50 percent overall say that they're following it's about one in three in women and but the the amount that that has increased is about threefold and and fourfold actually for men over the age of 55 so there's almost a, a willingness to pay attention to a sport that Canadians had in the back of their mind, but weren't necessarily, you know, building their, their weekdays around, yeah, I think they could maintain that next year.
0: There's one NBA team. It's in Toronto. If you're not in the regular environs, or if you can't get easily across the border to one of the American markets when the Raptors happen to be playing there, there's no geographically uh, easy reason for you to be a fan, but but this this is really, really seriously caught on. Let me ask you this, and I know we're going to have upset hockey fans. Look, if, if right now I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan, always have been my, my whole life. If so if there were, then I'm a Raptors fan. So, uh, uh, well, I'm a Raptors fan because they are where they are. Uh, but if the, the Habs were in a Stanley Cup final and the Raptors were, are where, were where they are now in the NBA championships, what would I watch? NHL 10 times out of 10. But that doesn't mean that I don't have affection for now and interest in the Raptors. So what would what would happen? I know you asked this question. Uh, what would happen? What would Canadians choose? Would they choose to watch the Raptors in a playoff game, or would they? I think this is the question you asked. Or would they choose an NHL playoff game?
2: Yeah. So we asked about that that idea of of you know you only get to choose the Stanley Cup final versus the NBA finals, and thankfully for. You know, Rodgers and everybody involved, the NHL and the NBA, are are splitting. They're not they're not competing head-to-head on any nights, which is really nice for sports fans. But we actually asked it, presuming that, yeah, you, you only get the choice to watch one, and now you, you know that the Raptors are in, but the other one that you have to choose from is non-Canadian teams. So it's a little bit different. Um, and the NHL still wins... Slightly on that question, and that's even just with Boston and St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, a, it's. I believe it's 38 percent who said that they would follow the Stanley Cup final. 33 percent said the NBA finals. That's close. And 29 percent are just really not sports fans and said they wouldn't watch either of. them.
0: Okay, so of the people who will watch, the ones who are the sports fans, what's mm-hmm. the younger, the youngest demographic? What's the 18 to 24 uh, year old or 25 year old crowd saying? Where are yeah, they going? For
2: the, the younger crowd, uh, both men and women, lean towards the NBA. And where you get the, what really swings it in favor of the NHL is that 55 plus age group. And those are the people who are actually the 55 plus men are really one of the strongest groups in terms of paying attention to this. NBA Finals, but they're also uh, by far the highest in terms of saying that they would switch over to the NHL gladly if they had the opportunity or if they uh, were mandated to. So, if there
0: we were a Canadian team flying.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and we actually had something team. from a, a, a survey earlier this year that showed that you know 62% of Canadians said that they don't even care who who it is? They just want a Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup, and they'd be yeah. willing to jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, exactly. So I think you'd have a lot of people with you, even if it was say the the, the Habs that were the team. Uh, they would draw a ton of interest across the country. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I would become an instant uh, Canucks fan or a Flames fan or an Oil or some God. They need some help in the Oilers. Uh, <laughs> I, I or, or a Jets fan or I'd even. St- try real hard to become a Senators fan. That um, would be hard for me, but, but I, would, I would root for the Canadian team. No question. No question. But this, there's also no question that the Raptors are gaining in popularity. If they hang on to Kawhi Leonard and if they win the NBA championships, whoa, there's going to be pressure in Toronto, certainly on the Leafs. Dave, this is fascinating stuff, um, but I got to tell you, the American American Radio this morning... Wow, wow, wow.
2: They've all been predicting golden state in six, and now that's off the table. So now all they got left to do is just kind of cry.
0: I wanted to send them Kleenex. (laughs) That was (laughs) wow. Thank you, Dave. Good talking to you. No problem. Anytime, all the best. Dave Korczynski from Angus Reed. Wow, wow. What do Canadians know about basketball? It was a Canadian who invented the game, dopey. Stuart Bell, a great reporter with Global News, national online journalist investigative. A story from Stuart this week, Canadian captured in Syria, says ISIS asked him to infiltrate the U.S. to conduct attacks. In an interview with U.S. researchers, a Canadian captured in Syria said he was asked by ISIS to infiltrate the U.S. through Mexico to conduct attacks. Uh, Speaking to the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism, Abu Henrique al said he was instructed to travel to Puerto Rico, take a boat to Mexico, and cross into the U.S. What they wanted to do, basically, is they wanted to do financial attacks, financial attacks to cripple the economy, and he said this in a May 12 interview conducted at a prison in northeast Syria. Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is uh, Dr. Ann Speckhart. She's the director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism. And again, that's the organization that Abu Henriki al Kanadi said he was, uh, that, that he spoke with. He's a dual citizen, by the way, of Canada and Trinidad. Uh, Dr. Speckhard, thank you so much for taking the time. W- were you the one who interviewed uh, this man?
5: Yes, uh, I interviewed him in May, along with uh, our research director, Dr. Sheikovsi. The two of us were uh, conducting the interview. But, um, yeah, I'm the one that asked the questions. I'm a psychologist.
0: Okay, so... Uh, what what did you come away with? I mean, you, first, what are the conditions that he's living under, and 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 how did you come to interview him, and what did you come away with?
5: Well, he's one of these guys that made it all the way to the end. Um, I think he came out of Bagus, and uh, he had... Uh, Uh, become disillusioned of ISIS. He went uh, hoping that they were going to put together their utopian state and found that it was quite different than what he expected and that it got worse as time went on. And uh, he he fought for them in the beginning, but he became ill. He's got some kind of a um, disease, and uh, so he stopped fighting for them. But he told us all his experiences in ISIS and his opinion of ISIS, and we were wrapping up the interview, getting ready to go, I think after a long day. I think he was our final one of the day. So the people supporting us in the prison were ready to go. And he suddenly said, I have something else I want to tell you. And so I think he trusted me. Um, I tend to bring that out in people. I, I asked them a lot about how they felt, uh, about their emotions things like that we're, we're not interrogators so we're not looking for their crimes really and you know so that's not their usual experience and he said uh he started with the canadian and the american intel have both been in to talk to me about stopping potential attacks and i want to help them um he said but i didn't tell them this and i want to tell you And he said that he'd been invited to take part in an attack. And he said, remember when I told you that ISIS put me in prison? The reason they put me in prison and tortured me is that I refused to do it. And he said I was pressured, and there were like four other guys. And the ISIS leadership was leaning on them. and, And it was because they were English speakers, North Americans. They could... More easily be considered that they belong in North America. Although it's funny, you know, coming from Trinidad and Tobago as an American, uh, I would recognize him as not being American. But I think ISIS leadership had the uh, idea that he could pass. Mm. So
6: let me, let me and, ask you. This. Uh, they Did- were
5: going to send him through the southern border, Did- and uh, that kind of amazed me because you know, living here in the states, we hear oftentimes these days. From President Trump about um, terrorists are trying to come in our borders, and um, I'm much more concerned about uh, Europeans that have visa waivers. That if you're a clean skinned European, you can get on a plane and come over to the states. Um, you don't have to get a visa, nothing. And there's quite a bit of extremism in Europe.
0: When you were speaking, when you were speaking with him, did he sound believable? Because when I when I read Stewart's story, and I'm, I'm speaking with you now. Saying that ISIS wanted me to do this, they wanted me to go and commit acts of terrorism in the United States, and I didn't do it, and then I got, I was imprisoned and tortured for doing this. It sounds like may have happened, but it sounds like the kind of uh, "please get me out of here and get me back into Canada" excuse somebody would make up.
5: No, no, I, I didn't have any sense of that. I don't think he saw us as having any power like that, and we don't put ourselves out as having that power because we don't. Mm-hmm. And um, no, I think it was more confessional. He said he had never told anybody except for his wife, and after he told us, he said, "You know, I feel really relieved. I got that off my chest. I needed I needed to tell somebody that."
0: So, what and do you think? That, what do you think Canada should be doing about these individuals who are? Canadian citizens. We have law, a law in this country, I'm sure you're aware of, Bill C-6, where if you're a convicted terrorist, you can't have your Canadian citizenship stripped from you. That was not the case previously. So do you think the Canadian government should get more involved and engaged with these uh, individuals who, who signed up with ISIS and now say they're not members of ISIS any longer? Well,
5: my view is uh, we can't be making people um, stateless. So if someone's got dual citizenship um, and you're following international law, you can strip their citizenship. But can you strip someone's citizenship if he has no other passport? And then who are you dumping them on? And I feel sorry for the Syrian Democratic Forces. I mean, they're dealing with 10,000 of these guys and then another 30,000 Iraqis and another 30,000 Syrians. And the fight is active now. ISIS is defeated, but there's still... Pockets. When we were there, they said there had been 15 um, explosions in the last month, and um, which they were all crediting to ISIS. So the group is still active. And um, the other thing I would say is we keep running across Westerners that look to me like they've gone through a process of deradicalization by... Seeing the corrupt and un-Islamic nature of the group as time went on, it didn't live up to what they hoped. So they're deeply disappointed in that. Then if they're also imprisoned, they just have had a lot of time to think and say, you know what, I ruined my life over the stupidest thing. So I don't think these are people that are coming back, gung-ho, you know, want to kill Canadians. I would say more they're sad and sorry people that you definitely should put in a rehabilitation program, and they definitely should serve time. They should be prosecuted. They should serve time, and during that time, they should go through some kind of rehabilitation, reintegration program. And I think they can succeed at that because if the program focuses on what ISIS really was, and and they know the truth of ISIS because they lived under it, and redirects them to more fruitful things, I, I think that they can start new lives. It's, it's a pity that they just, you know, destroyed their lives and destroyed the lives of others.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a hard sell for many people in this country and I think other countries to accept that individuals who are left to join a terror organization should be allowed to come back and pick up their lives even after a prison sentence. That's going to be a hard sell well, then, then for much of the population. You ask
5: yourself, yeah, then you have to ask yourself is it is it uh, legal is it, speaking on international terms is it legal to make people stateless and if you do make them stateless, who are you dumping them on?
0: Yeah, we're talking about people who had dual citizenship. that's what that law was about the previous law in Canada oh, okay. i have a, I have about thirty yeah. seconds. let me ask you this you're you're very much aware of what's going on with uh, with with you know these individuals and with with the, with the with the terror groups and what's happening in the area. Would you say that the spectrum of violent global extremism is on a growth curve or not?
5: Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, I, I no, I would say it's not on a growth curve, and that we made a terrible mistake internationally when we allowed ISIS to control territory and control resources. I mean, this is a really rich organization that functioned as a state for at least a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So people that were there in 2014 and 2015 in Raqqa said it was great. You know, it it was what I thought it would be. Uh, There were disappointments, of course, but, you know, they were paying salaries. They they were functioning as a state. Right. they managed to attract 45,000 people
0: That's which is crazy. which which is disturbing given the violence the the excruciating violence they perpetrated on so many people and the gruesome nature of the acts they undertook uh, that you can attract people with that kind of gruesome violence uh, is 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 really really disturbing. I know there's a I know this is another issue that we'd be getting into and I hope we can talk again, Dr. Speckhard. Thank you very much for the time. It's been good talking to you.
5: You're welcome. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye, Dr. Anne Speckhard. She's the director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism and this individual who's uh, still in I think Syria now um clearly wants to come back to Canada. I have a feeling that's going to be part of our election campaign. That is going to be part, this whole discussion will be part of the election campaign. The Senate has decided, as you know, and we talked to Mr. Shear about this, on Bills C-69 and C-48. Now it's going back to the MPs. Meanwhile, SecondStreet.org, a new Canadian think tank, has released a policy brief showing over the past five years $196 billion in natural resource projects have been stalled or cancelled, due at least in part... Government policies. Colin Craig is the president of SecondStreet.org. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Colin, thank you very much uh, for the time. And when we talk about energy industries, what what industries are we talking about?
8: Well, we're looking at we looked at uh, natural resource projects across the country, and we looked into forestry, mining, and oil and gas. And we didn't see any instances of uh, for major forestry projects not going ahead, but certainly that doesn't mean that it wasn't happening it's just it, it, it certainly didn't seem to be uh, publicized but that industry does have concerns with being able to Get their product, projects up off the ground, but yeah, the major the list that we compiled looked at mining and oil and gas, and there were some big, big projects that our countries missed out on.
0: Okay, so so the big number from your research is that 196 billion dollars. My eyes start to roll backwards when I when I think of that. So that's massive. That's what was lost over five years, stalled or cancelled natural resource projects four of those five years, almost, under Justin Trudeau. So in everyday terminology that everyone can understand, what does that $196 billion represent?
8: Well, what we did is we thought, well, let's compare it with something that people understand. And a lot of cities in Canada have built NHL-sized arenas. So we gathered a few estimates from recent uh, NHL-sized arenas that have been built in North America and compared that with this $196 billion figure. And what it works out to is roughly the equivalent of building an NHL-sized arena every day for a year. So it's a massive, massive, massive uh, opportunity that uh, our country's largely missed out on.
0: We spend years just in debating the opportunities or lack of opportunities in building uh, an NHL arena. And here we are. This money represents the building of one every day for a full year. Now, Mr. Trudor, just this week and politicians do this, was crowing over national unemployment being historically low, and he took credit for setting the stage for the creation of a million new jobs since 2015, I would think that that $196 billion of unreached fiscal opportunity for Canada would also mean a huge number of jobs not realized. Do you have numbers on that?
8: You know, it's it's tough to put a, a number on, but um, and, and this is for a variety of reasons. One is that when we look up these projects, sometimes they have a jobs estimate, sometimes they don't. Uh, so that's that's one reason. It's, it gets a little mucky when you're looking at mining projects versus oil and gas and so forth. But to give readers some food for thought in, in terms of what we're looking at, just one of the projects on this list, the Energy East Pipeline, the, a big accounting firm, Deloitte, estimated that that could create – upwards of 10,000 jobs. So that's just one project. Oh. And so if you look at this entire list, uh, you know, I certainly feel comfortable saying that we've missed out on tens of thousands of jobs. And you know, a couple of things to keep in mind about our unemployment situation right now is that um, it, it looks at people that are looking for work. Well, here in Alberta, some people have given up looking for work. They're sitting on the sidelines because they know that there's no jobs available. Um, and you'll certainly find that same type of scenario in other parts of the country and the other thing to keep in mind is is that these are very well good paying jobs in these involved in these projects right I mean construction jobs uh you know people that are you know pipe fitting welding all that I mean these are jobs that pay pretty good wages and they come with pretty good benefits and so forth so you know you always have to take a closer look at the unemployment rate to look at well what types of jobs are people employed and are there better opportunities out there and so forth.
0: Many component parts and if you stop looking for a job, you stop being a statistic. They don't count you anymore. So you could have you could have you can have, a, you can have a 500,000 people in a in a community of 600,000 people who are unemployed and lo- not looking for work anymore and the the headline would read full employment.
8: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that's how it works, right? It is. You've got to keep in mind the people that aren't looking. And, and these jobs, you know, I think what's really important to consider is that sometimes people think, well, a mining project, oh, that's just, that just affects northern Alberta or northern Manitoba, or an oil and gas project, oh, that's just an Alberta project. But the reality is, is that when these big projects go ahead, they buy tons of products from other companies throughout the country. So... I was in Scarborough last week and I was uh, talking with some people that work in manufacturing and one of them produces the powder that is used to coat pipelines. Another one actually takes the powder and they, you know, process it and then they coat the pipelines. And then, you know, another company is doing some welding work for uh, to make customized uh, equipment for the, the uh, oil and gas sector and so forth. So here you are in Scarborough and there's tons of people working. Uh, related to projects that are, you know, two, three, four provinces over. So, it's, you know, these projects affect people throughout the country and if you're not affected through it directly or indirectly through your job, you are through the taxes that you pay because these big, big projects pay big, big tax bills. Mm-hmm. And when governments don't get those revenues, then they start to hunt around and look at the rest of us to either pay higher taxes or pay more, that kind of thing. So, it's, uh, these projects affect people from coast to coast.
0: And uh, and Colin, you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned Energy East, mm-hmm. the pipeline, and 10,000 jobs. And as you were talking, I was thinking, hold on now, that's 10,000 jobs for one pipeline project that got no support, essentially got no support from the Prime Minister of this country. At the same time, though, he was massively invested, at least he told us he was, over a potential 9,000 jobs lost at SNC-Lavalin. We then found out from the CEO that no 9,000 jobs were risked anyway. But mm-hmm. uh, th- there's an inconsistency here, and when politics start to intrude on the reality of jobs, economic success, and the livelihood of Canadians, that's an imbalance that cannot be tolerated.
8: Yes, you know, I and I think, uh, you know, we're especially seeing it here in Alberta. There's a lot of real frustration in this province, because it's a, a province that pays a lot in towards the equalization program, and those dollars then spread throughout the country. Right. Uh, but then when it comes time for Alberta to, you know, get approval to build a pipeline so that it can continue to pay those equalization dollars, well then it starts to run into trouble. And uh, some other provinces kind of kick up a stink, and it's it's really frustrating. And uh, not just the political class here in Alberta, but uh, everyday people. There, you well, know, you know, when, a lot you, of frustration when
0: you and I were talking off the air, we were talking about uh, Quebec and the Quebec government mm-hmm. is the ones that is talking about. They don't want dirty Alberta oil crossing over their pristine uh, territory. Meanwhile, they're dumping uh, hundreds of millions of tons of poop into that St. Lawrence River. Uh, you can't get your head around that. But but when I spoke with the uh, representative for the Montreal Economic uh, Institute about a study, or at least a poll that they had done with Leger of, 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 of Quebecers, they wanted pipelines. They wanted oil from Alberta. That's what the average Quebecer wanted. And the representative from the Montreal Economic Institute said, there's the disconnect between people, the regular people on the street who get it, and the elites who don't.
3: Yes, exactly.
8: And I, I think that everyone needs to pause and just consider that, not get upset with Quebecers and stereotype because, you know, the every, like you say, the everyday Quebecer, I mean, they want to support this country. They want to support yeah. buying products from their neighbors in other parts of the country. It, it seems to be the political class that hasn't caught up to where the, the mind is. No, they are. haven't. I have,
0: I have two more questions for you here, and I have a lot more, but I'm just going to ask you two. If the global economy falters, and it did, we all remember, very well 2008 2009 mm-hmm. so if the global economy were to falter canada's energy sector should be our natural and national fiscal backstop it isn't is it
8: it's it's certainly weaker than it was and and you know i think you raise an important point is that uh, you know when the economy slows down well people still need to heat their homes then they still need to, Fuel for their cars and so forth. So it is it is one of those products that is hard for people to to wean off of uh, in the event that there is a slowdown. So that yeah. that should be a bit of a, a buffer for the economy to keep us going. But when we keep putting up these roadblocks in front of these projects, it it's not that the oil is going to stay in the ground. It may stay in the ground in Canada, but the world will simply get it from some other country. And it's right. actually worse for the environment because then some other country that probably has lower environmental standards, they're going to provide it.
0: Well, in the minute we have left, let me pick up on that point. Yeah. When investors pull out of a project in Canada yeah. or begin to see Canada as more of a problem than a solution, it's hard to get them to come back with their investment funds, isn't it?
8: Yes, exactly. And that, that's sort of the untold story with this is that uh, – you know once you develop a reputation, you have to work extra hard to get rid of that reputation. And the reputation that Canada has certainly uh, built up over the past few years is that we're the place to go if you want to see a stop sign when it comes to getting these projects going ahead. It's just investors and proponents they're meeting so many red lights. Right. they can't get these things off the ground, and it's going to take a lot. A very hard, uh, it's going to take a lot of hard work to turn that around and convince the global investment community no, no, wait, we're open for business again.
0: So we find you at secondstreet.org, right? Secondstreet.org.
8: Yep, that's the website, and people can see the report and uh, take a look at our videos and other works.
0: Well, brand-new think tank and uh, doing great work. I, I enjoyed talking to you, Colin. I hope you'll come back.
8: Yeah, thanks a lot, Roy. It's been great.
0: Yeah, all the best. Colin Craig is the president of SecondStreet.org.